The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning as we read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. This is the word of God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of their flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. All God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, we want to know how we got here. We want to know how our salvation has been won. Father, we want the joy of being able to, as fully as possible, comprehend, understand, and feel the full weight what it means to declare that salvation is of the Lord. So, Father, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that you would guard my mouth from anything that is not true, anything that is not helpful. I pray that you would guard these people's ears and their hearts, that they could rightly hear and discern, believe and be transformed by what you have revealed to us here in your word. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have a lot to cover this morning, and I'm hopeful we can, um, we can land the plane well this morning and not come crashing to a halt. So I ask you to go ahead and stand to your feet now. As we jump right back into Ephesians chapter 1, we're reading verse 3 through 14. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe what we have heard. We ask it for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this morning, I will yet again draw your attention to the seventh verse here in the first chapter of Ephesians. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You probably remember that we spent the entirety of our last Lord's Day Considering together that word, redemption. What does God mean when he uses the word redemption? I think that we came to a fairly good, solid, biblical, working definition that went something like this. That redemption is deliverance or freedom or release secured by the payment of a ransom. You remember that we look back to the picture of the Exodus. As God set Israel free from slavery in Egypt. What we saw there was a tremendous physical picture of a much deeper spiritual reality. As God called this weak and helpless people to himself, as by the mighty working of his own hand, God redeemed this bunch of ragtag, undeserved sinners. Not because of anything inherent within them, not because of anything that they had done, not because of anything that they would do, but because God had sovereignly set his love upon them. He then did absolutely everything necessary to purchase their freedom and to win them to himself, to call them out into the wilderness where they would enter into a covenant relationship with him. As I told you last week, this is a beautiful picture of our own redemption. Now this morning, what I'm asking you to do is to engage your minds yet again. I'm asking you to engage your minds to hope that we would more fully understand how this wonderful thing has happened to us. As I put it last week, how has God done that which he preordained from before the foundation of the world. What has God done? How has God accomplished our redemption? Now we could simply say, look, Paul says it plain and clear right here, that God has redeemed us in Christ through his blood. Why do we need to make it any more complicated than that? Jesus lived for us. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Therefore, be joined to Christ through repentant faith, and you will be saved. We shouldn't go poking around in places that we don't belong. But, beloved, we belong there because God has revealed it to us. And you know beyond this how wrong statements like this can be. Now, look, everything that I've just said is true, absolutely. You come to someone and you say, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died an atoning death. He rose again three days later. And if you will repent and place your trust in him, you will be saved. Will that man be saved? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you must see how many times the scripture repeatedly calls us to go deeper, to keep digging, to come to the scripture with questions, seeking answers, to move from milk to meat, to mature to adulthood, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because along with these calls, there comes warnings. Scripture makes clear to us that if we refuse, if we get frustrated or discouraged or just plain lazy, and we stop there at the surface level, then we actually open ourselves up. We become weak. We become susceptible to all all manner of untruth. 
to the cunning of man. Then what we'll find is that we will tend to believe anything which tickles our ears, anything which plays to our emotions, anything which seems right to our fleshly minds. And that for even, even those that don't fall away, even those that don't end up walking away and abandoning the faith altogether, what we will find is that they have been robbed of incredible amounts of joy, the assurance, the hope that's meant to be found in this gospel. I can't tell you for how much of my life, I would say for the vast majority of my cognizant life, as much as I can remember, I always knew the gospel. I could always tell you the scriptures, and I always believed it to be true, but I had no idea what any of it really meant justification, redemption, even words like forgiveness and repentance. I had this vague concept that they were something that was good. I knew that because of these things, I get to go to heaven instead of hell, but I could never really tell you what they meant. I had no real clue how or why any of these things came together. So if I'm honest, for much of my professing, believing life, it felt like I was putting my hope in pixie dust. I looked at other people, and they were overwhelmed with a sense of joy. They had this rock-solid assurance that in Christ Jesus, they had eternal life. But none of it really made much sense. It seemed disjointed and seemed illogical to me at times. And so then I would feel foolish anytime I would try to explain the gospel to anyone. Now, I could bombard you with all kinds of scriptures. I could just vomit out all that the Word of God has to say. But then if the person on the other side were to say, yeah, but tell me what that means. Tell me how this happens. How does a man dying on a cross have anything to do with me going to heaven? How does even me placing my trust in the Son of God dying on the cross and rising again, how does that deal with any of my problems? How does that make me right with God? And how does that guarantee me eternal life? So then I end up feeling foolish. And I'm going, well, what am I believing in here? I've memorized a bunch of words from a book, and again, I believe them to be true, but I end up feeling foolish, and deep in the back recesses of my mind, there was this constant, consistent doubt. Can this be real? How does this work? So as I told you last week, my hope for us over the course of, here, of our study here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, my hope is that we would outgrow these, these childish and immature understandings of Christ and the redemption. They would out, we would outgrow this immature understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. They would come to more firmly grasp this thing that has happened, this wonderful thing that happened 2,000 years ago, that we would set our hope on the objective truth, the objective reality of the cross of Christ instead of our own subjective feelings and emotions. That we would come to understand how has Christ Jesus actually accomplished our redemption? So it seemed to me last week, and I returned to that this morning, it seemed to me that the first question we should ask is, from what has God redeemed us? What were we enslaved to? And so last week, referring to the words of Christ in John 8, 34, the teaching of Paul in Romans 7 and 8, I told you that we were all once slaves sold under the power of sin. Now I told you that sin is not just a bad thing that we do. Sin isn't even just the bad thoughts and emotions and desires that we have. That sin is a slave master. That sin is a power at work within man causing us to hate the light and love the darkness. Romans 6.12 seems to point to this where we read Paul saying, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Sin is a power that reigns, that causes you to obey its desires. That's what slavery means, isn't it? That when you're a slave, you do whatever the master tells you to do. So we see here that sin reigns and it rules in the hearts of fallen men. It causes them to do things that dishonor God. Now, the natural inclination of man, it was certainly the answer of the Jewish people. The immediate response is, I'm a slave to no one. I do whatever I want. I follow my own will and I do that which seems right to me. Beloved, that's the problem. It's that we're willing slaves. In that very same chapter, Paul goes on to say in Romans six nineteen that you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. We were willing slaves. Of course you always do what you most want. That's why you're answerable. That's why we will all stand before God on the day of judgment, because we have always done what seemed right to us. We have always done what seemed most pleasing in our own sight. And what Scripture tells us, what Jesus tells us in John 8, is that it was once our will to do the will of our Father, the devil. We were not held against our will. We weren't, we weren't somehow in a position where we could not do that which seemed right. The problem was that our wills were in bondage. Our wills were bound up by the power of sin. So what we find in this slavery is that we're enslaved by a heart that is filled with a love for darkness. We're enslaved by a heart that can only want to do that which is displeasing to God. And the problem is the power of this sin, the power of our own fallen will, it is so great that we can do nothing about it. We can't even want to desire to do something else. So what Paul is telling us is that it is from this that Christ Jesus came to ransom you, to deliver you. In the parallel verse to this, in Colossians 1.13, he says that God has delivered you from the dominion of darkness. A dominion is just a realm of authority or power. So he says that God has delivered you from the power of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Again, going right back to Romans 6, we read that God has freed us from slavery to sin so that we are now slaves to righteousness. That these wills that could only want evil at one time, these wills that were bound up by a love for darkness, they have been now set free and bound to Christ that his desires might become our desires. First Peter, says, First Peter 1, 18-19 says this, that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. But is this all that redemption is? Is this the only thing that Paul is talking about here when he speaks of our being set free by payment of a ransom? Is it just that our wills have been removed from the dominion of darkness, that we have been set free to choose what is right, to desire, to will, to follow after that which is pleasing to God, and now it is up to us? Look, he's given us the tools. He's given us the freedom. He's given us the ability. Now we must go and make ourselves right with God. We must then go and make atonement for everything that we have done to put ourselves at at odds with God. See, we've got to keep asking questions, do you see? If you just stop and go, okay, well, Jesus died, I believe, and therefore I'm free. Jesus died, and I believe, therefore heaven is mine. And we don't keep asking questions, the doubts remain. So is this all that redemption means? Well, Paul won't let us stay there. Because in Ephesians 1, 7, he says that it means, in large part, That redemption means the forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness. This is the root. The most fundamental 
of all spiritual blessings. You want to know what's the foundation of this gift of redemption? It is this, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It's necessary for everything that follows. All that God has been promising us, all that he planned before the foundation of the world, that all of this hinges upon this, that we would be forgiven of our trespasses. So I think before we consider the word forgiveness, let's first examine what does this word trespasses mean? See, every single word, all of Scripture is God-breathed, and all of Scripture is profitable and perfect and good and authoritative, but there's those certain verses where every single word seems to deserve an entire week or month worth of sermons to try to really unpack what is God saying here. So what does this word mean? Transgressions. I thought you just said we were in slavery to sin, but now all of a sudden he's talking about forgiveness of transgressions. So is that the same word? Now, if you read, if your copy of God's word is an NIV or a uh, King James translation, then you'll find that it says that we have forgiveness of sins. So certainly these, these guys aren't completely out of whack. They're not completely wrong to use these words almost interchangeably, sin and, and transgressions. They point us towards the same reality. It's this opposition that man has towards God. It's the stance that man has that hates the things of God and loves the things of darkness. But, They're not completely synonymous. Sin, as I said, it's a power. It's a force. It's a slave master that's pulling men's heart away from God and towards the darkness. You might think of the Old Testament word iniquity. Iniquity, it's a a twistedness. It's an unrighteousness. That's what King David says in Psalm 51.5 when he says that he was brought forth in iniquity, that this was his disposition. It was to be in opposition to God. And then when that sin, that power, Whenever it has its way with men, we find those men sinning. That is desiring or thinking or speaking or acting in ways that do not honor God. Anything that does not reflect the value and the worth and the beauty of God is supreme above all else. That's what it means to sin. That's what we find in Romans 3.23 when he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It isn't we were supposed to be gods. We were supposed to be as glorious as God, but our sins have held us back. It's that we have failed to esteem the glory of God as the highest and greatest and most magnificent thing in all the world, and that is sin. We've settled for something less. And as I've labored hard to show you over all these months, because the glory of God is the highest and greatest and most magnificent thing in all the universe, and because God's greatest passion, his heart's greatest desire is for the manifestation, the showing, the revealing, the honoring, the protecting of that glory. It's a bad thing. It's an abominable thing. It's a despicable thing. It's the epitome of sin if man should ever allow anything to encroach upon this glory. Even the best things that this world has to offer, your children, your wife, your church, your ministry, your own reputation, to allow any of these things to encroach upon the place in your heart where God's glory should be, that this in and of itself is sin, It's a dishonorable thing. It's to seek to rob God, to take away from the majesty of his name. And so we see here how sin, sin is the the pull of your heart. It's the power at work within your will causing you to prefer anything over God. And sins are the outworking of this kind of a heart. It's a trading down is what Paul says in Romans 1. We've covered this text often. It's a constant trading down. It's the seeing of the glory of God, which God says revealed to all men everywhere at all times. At very least within his creation. It's seeing this and saying, you know what, but I prefer the things that you have made, mostly myself. 
I prefer the things that you have made over you, the creator. I do not value your glory as the greatest thing in all the universe, and therefore I'll settle for this, that this is what it looks like, and that every man, therefore, is guilty before God, that we have all sinned, that we have all fallen short, we have all lacked a proper admiration and love and desire for that which is best. But trespass carries with it a different concept, a different idea. Again, we use these words together. I listened to a man this week that said that the more important a biblical word is, a concept is, the more words Scripture will use to try and define it. That when you find a concept in Scripture, and there's not just one word that points us towards it, but many, it tells you how important this concept must be. So trespass, it points us to this same concept, but it isn't the same. It isn't to fall short. It isn't to improperly appraise the glory of God, although certainly it comes from a heart that has these kind of disordered affections. It comes from a heart that doesn't appraise God properly, but trespass means to step outside or beyond the boundaries. Now, some translations, they have, instead of trespass, they have transgress, but I think trespass speaks more clearly to us. You know what it means to trespass on someone else's property. It means that you've gone somewhere you don't belong. You've crossed over a line that has been set by law. I think this is helpful. I think this is helpful to give us a full scope of what it means to be a sinner, what it means to be a transgressor. So we see that we've got this thing called sin, this iniquity, this unrighteousness, this twisted power that's within us that's enslaved our wills so that we desire the darkness and hate the light, so that we distrust God. Then sinning is the outworking of that is we show something in this creation to be more valuable to us other than God. And then trespasses is the response of a sinful man with a heart like this when it comes up against the law of God. That seems to be what Paul's pointing us to in Romans 5. I don't have time as badly as I would like. I can already look and tell. We're going to have to be moving quickly here. I don't have the time that I would, re- that I would like to really work through Romans 5. So I'm just going to point you to one text here, one, one verse here in Romans 5.20. What we see is Paul is talking here about the kind of sin that was in the world from the days of Adam to the days of Moses. Because you might be tempted to think, but there were no laws there. There was the one law in the garden, thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree. But then from that point to Mount Sinai, there were no express laws given to men, and yet they were all sinners. How do we know they were all sinners? Because they were all dying. Number one, because they were guilty in Adam as our federal head, as the one who represented the entire human race. He blew it. We all stood guilty before God, but we continued to pile our own sin upon this, continued to favor things rather than God, continued to dishonor him and his glory. And yet we read this here in verse 5, verse 20 of Romans 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but there was, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is saying here that the law was given in order to increase the trespasses. Now certainly there's a degree to which the law of God is given in order to reveal sin, to put a name to sin, to show us very clearly these are the specific ways where you have dishonored and been in opposition to the holy and perfect God. But there's another way in which law increases trespass. You see, when the law of God, the perfect and good and righteous law of God, meets sinful men, men who prefer things over God, men who have come to fall for the lies of the enemy, we distrust God. We don't believe that he is for us. We don't believe that his way is for our good. So that then whenever we come up against this law, we're going to immediately bow our neck 
and revolt. We're going to hate the law just as we're going to hate God who's given us the law, and by this, sin increases. It's like petulant children, right? If I don't like you, I'm sure not going to like the boundaries that you have set. If I don't trust you, I'm not going to trust the boundaries that you have set. So again, I say it's like a petulant child. God, you don't tell me where to go. You don't tell me what to do. As a matter of fact, you tell me not to do it. I want to do it all the more. I will be the one who determines what is good and what is evil. See the garden. Go back to the tree. So what we see here with this concept of trespasses, it's sinful men and sinful hearts and those in opposition of God revolting against his law. And so I think that we see then the way that these these realities, these words that point to the same reality, they come from the same place. And I believe that Paul uses this word trespass here instead of the word for sin, the Greek word. Instead of using hamartia for, for sin, he uses trespass because he wants to take us all the way through. He wants to show us the full picture of a heart in opposition to God and rebellion to God. Not just a heart that distrusts God. Not just a heart that favors things other than God. Not just a heart that turns away from God and towards the darkness, but a heart that comes up to the law of God and says, you tell me not to touch it, and I will touch that. That all of that is implied within this, and it, from this, Christ Jesus has set it free. Now, you want to see why this is a problem? Just look across the page there in Ephesians chapter 2. We see those words together there, sins and trespasses, and we see what a tremendous problem this is. Because you might be tempted to say, well, why does this matter? If God is handing me over to my own will to do the things which seem right to me, and those things seem right to me because they bring me pleasure, why is this a problem? Why is forgiveness such a precious gift? Well, Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were once dead. It's the same thing that we're talking about, that you weren't sick. You weren't incapacitated for a moment. You were slaves. You were in bondage. You were completely incapable. You were dead in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Again, this is a willing bondage. These were the desires of our body and our mind. These are the passions of our own flesh, these sins that we committed, these trespasses that we carried out. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were slaves to sin. We were following our father, Satan, and yet we loved it all along. We were doing that which seemed right to us. But where does that bondage leave us? Where does these sins and these trespasses, where do they go if we're not forgiven, if we're not released from them? And you were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Beloved, this is the biggest problem with sin. It's not the actions in and of themselves here and now. But frankly, that's what so many people teach, isn't it? So many people, they come and they know that God loves us and they know that God's law is good. They know that God's law is for our good. And therefore, they teach that God has given us these commandments just to show us the way to a happy life, just to show us the way to earthly blessedness. I mean, look, follow the laws. What do you have to lose, right? You'll be faithful and honest and, and a nonviolent man, someone who doesn't take things that don't belong to you, the kind of person you'd want for a neighbor, the kind of person you'd want to marry your daughter. Look, what have you got to lose then? And so because of this, because God has given us this law in these people's minds, because God has given us this law just as a path to earthly happiness, the reason then God hates sin is because it robs us of our potential. It makes us unhappy. It leads to earthly ruin. You've heard this kind of teaching before, haven't you? It's all around us. It's coming into this town by the day. It fills the church houses. 
that God's ultimate desire is for your earthly happiness. And the law just plays right in with this. They teach the law as if it's some little instruction book. It's just God's little instruction book for how you to live your life. Now, you guys don't know this. I don't know if I've ever told you this. The first sermon that I ever preached was not actually in this church. I preached a sermon, I don't know, I was, I was probably 30, something like that, the first sermon I preached in this church. My first sermon came when I was eight years old. South Main Baptist Church in Houston, we did a children's sermon each week. And um, so I would come down, I would sit at the front. I had one opportunity. I came down, I sat at the front, and what I had in my hand was a Bible, and we had just gotten a lop-eared rabbit. We had the fattest lop-eared rabbit you've ever seen. And I had an instruction book for how to take care of a rabbit. And I came down before the church and I sat there and I said, look, these two books are essentially the same. I've got God's instruction book to make sure that I have a happy and healthy rabbit. Man's instruction book, excuse me. But I've got God's instruction book to make sure that I'm a healthy and happy human. And the people went. I don't think you're supposed to punch eight-year-olds in the neck. But if I could go back, I would punch that little eight-year-old in the neck. You see how crazy this is? Now listen, do I believe that following the law of God? Listen, I stood in this place last Sunday night, and I told you that I believe that the Sabbath should be enforced all throughout the land. There's a blessing to the people when we follow the law of God. And I absolutely believe in the third use of the law, that for the children of God, for those who have been regenerated, those who have the Holy Spirit, that the law is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, that it shows me what is pleasing to my Father. It illustrates for me what sin looks like and how I should walk in holiness in this world. But you see the problem with this with, with regards to the unbelievers. Number one, they can't do anything that's pleasing in the sight of God because that which is not of faith is sin. And these men cannot do anything of faith. All that they do is of sin. In addition to this, there are places all throughout this world where to follow the law of God will not lead to immediate earthly happiness. It'll land you in prison. It'll cost you your life. And so look, generally speaking, when I stand before you people and say, listen, follow the law of God and you probably will stay married because you won't cheat on your wife. You probably won't go to jail because you're not going to steal. People will probably believe what you say because you won't be a liar. Sure, but you must understand that the ultimate problem with sin is not that it robs us of our happiness. It robs God of his glory. I am the Lord, I alone, and my glory I will not give to any other. That the law of God reveals to us not just a set of arbitrary rules, not even just a set, a set of rules for earthly happiness. In the law of God, God is revealing himself. He is showing us who he is. He's revealing to us something about his nature. So when I look to the law of God and say, I don't want to tell the truth, I want to lie, we're saying, God, I hate that you are the God of truth. Whenever we're unfaithful in our marriages, we're saying lies. We're telling lies to the world about who God is in relation to his people, who Christ is in relationship to his church. You know this. You know, the ultimate problem with sin is it is an offense against the living God. It's an assault on his holy name. And therefore, the problem with sin is that it puts us at odds with God. Our trespasses, our sins, they create a chasm, an insurmountable gulf between us and God. 
Now, we've spent six months here in this portion of Ephesians chapter 1. It's taken us six months to try to unveil all these glorious promises, all these spiritual blessings which God has bestowed upon us, which he preordained before the foundation of the world. I've worked hard to cause you to cling to these, to place your hope in these, to believe in the truth of these promises. But you recognize that none of these could be true, that none of these could come into your life as long as you're at odds with God. As long as you stand before him stained by sin, not just because of what those sins mean in this world, but because of what those sins say about God. So God cannot look upon sin and smile. God cannot bless anything that is contrary to his nature. Psalm 5, verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. So much with hate the sin, love the sinner. God expressly says in his word that he hates all evildoers. So the problem, therefore, with sin is not that it doesn't make us happy, not that it doesn't lead to our best life now, it's that it makes us enemies with God. Now, God continues to bestow blessings upon his enemies. That's the crazy thing in all this. You go to these churches and they say, if you would just become Christian, God will do good for you here and now. The reality is, you don't have to become Christian for God to make you rich and famous and all kinds of powerful. You understand this. God's common grace is poured out upon all mankind. It rains on the just and the unjust alike. If all you're wanting is earthly treasures, you don't need to come to Christ for that. But the problem is that while these men receive these good gifts from God, while these men continue to enjoy these blessings from the hand of God, they will find that in the end, it will only stand against them in judgment that God's righteous and just fury will be known. This is a fairly long text, but I need you to hear it. It's the minor prophet Nahum, verse 1, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and a storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and rocks are broken into pieces by him. You know what it's like to be at odds with someone. You know how awful it feels to know that someone is angry with you. You know what it feels like to know I'm not right with this person that is standing across from me. Generally speaking, we'll try to do something about that. You'll try to do something to cover up our failure or do something to make ourselves right with them 
And yet so much of the world, they walk around completely at odds with God, at enmity with God, destined for the eternal wrath and fury and indignation of God, and they could care less. And again, I tell you, there's pastors standing in places just like this all throughout the world, continuing to tell them, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Continue to tell them they're all children of God. And this God who is love, he must bless them. He must always give them their best. He must always forgive them of whatever they've done. God understands because we're all human. We all fall short. But we must preach, preach this message of God's judgment. Now, many people, they will leave this sermon today. Mark my words. People will leave this sermon and say, why is this dude always so heavy? I never leave this place with any hope. I never leave this place with any joy. He's always just beating up on us. Beloved, don't you understand there's no good news without the bad news? I don't do you favors by tickling your ears and pretending as though the wrath of God is not coming. The prophet Ezekiel says that if a man is standing, the watchman is standing upon the tower and he sees destruction coming and he fails to sound the trumpet and the people within the walls of that place die, their blood is on his hands. But the sillier thing in all of this is, you people are too smart to fall for a lie like that. You might buy it in this moment. I might be able to emotionally convince you that this is true, that all is well, all is well. Just go in peace. Be blessed by God. But in that dark night, when that phone call you never wanted to receive comes, when you find yourself battling with your own sin and you don't love yourself, it's all going to be a bunch of pixie dust. Just meaningless babble from the head of a preacher. We must recognize that the problem with sin is it places us under the righteous and just and unending wrath of God. Here's the hope. Paul tells us here in Ephesians 1 verse 7 that the core of redemption, the very heart of what it means to be redeemed in Christ Jesus is that you've been forgiven of your trespasses. We've been forgiven of everything that places us at odds with God. Everything that creates this chasm between us and God. Everything that makes us an enemy. Vessels of wrath, fitted for wrath, deserving of wrath. That all of that is forgiven. Now forgiveness means to release from an obligation or a debt. And you can immediately see how this goes together with redemption. That if redemption is to be delivered of something by, uh, by way of a payment of a ransom. And if forgiveness is the release or the setting someone free or pardoning them from a debt, you can see how these two things work hand in hand. And you'll immediately recall that all throughout Scripture, our sins, our trespasses, they're spoken of as debt. This is the language of the Bible. That God looks upon our sin and he sees it as a debt, a debt that requires payment from us. I want you to think about the Lord's Prayer. What did he teach us to pray to forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are in debt to us. Now, if you look at the parallel text in Luke, he says, forgive us our sins as we've forgiven everyone who is indebted to us. We immediately realize that sin creates a debt that we owe God. We have dishonored his name. We have failed to give him the thanks that he has due. We have sought to rob him of his glory. And so this debt must be settled. Something has to happen with it. Otherwise, we remain enemies of God, remain eternally separated from him and under this wrath. 
But you might be tempted to say, and this is where many people fall apart, so I need you to hone in here. You might be tempted to say, but time out. God has called us to forgive our debtors. It says, God, forgive us our debt as we have forgiven our debtors. And God, we're not allowed to require payment. Seventy times, seven times you have told me, I must forgive those who sin against me. I must turn the other cheek. I must love my enemies. I must forgive those who have cursed me. In fact, God, you've gone so far as to say that if I will not forgive others, that you won't forgive me. And so surely this God who is love, surely this God who is higher and greater and more pure and true than I am, surely he can at least forgive the way that I have. Why must he require payment? Isn't that wrong? If I've, got to, if I've got to forgive, if I've got to turn the other cheek, why can't God do the same? But Christian, surely you see how to do this is to completely miss the difference between us and God. I want to take you to a story in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 16. There's an example here. King David is fleeing Jerusalem. His son Absalom has attempted to seize the throne, and so David flees the holy city. He heads out to the east, up over the Mount of over the Mount of Olives, he's barefoot and he's weeping as he goes. And then out comes this man called Shimei. Shimei is from the tribe, from the family of King Saul. And so he hates David. And he says this, 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. When King David came to Beharim, there came out a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. So David's men were rightly enraged. This is the king. This is the sovereign. This is the one who deserves the utmost honor and respect. And so there was one of his friends, a man named Abishai. He was indignant over this, rightfully so. And so he says, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Seems like a right response, doesn't it? You've dishonored the king. Not some ordinary peasant. Not some beggar on the street. This is the king. Can't speak to him like this, but listen to what David replies. What have I to do with you, you son of Zehariah? If he is cursing because of, I'm sorry, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? David said, listen, what if God has sent this man here to curse me? Listen, David knew who he was. David knew that he was a sinner. Go back and read Psalm 51. He was born and conceived in sin, brought forth in iniquity. Against you and you alone have I sinned. David knew that he was a violent man. He was a deceitful man. He was an adulterous man. David knew that he deserved nothing but the wrath of God. So anything short of that was grace. A cursing? A few stones to the head? This is a gift of God. Anything short of death? In eternity in hell, this was grace. But even more than this, King David knows God might have his purposes. That God does all things for the ultimate cause of his glory. Therefore, if God has sent this man to curse me, he must have a higher purpose in this, namely the glory of his name. Therefore, I will pass it by. Therefore, I will forgive it. Therefore, I will turn the other cheek. Do you see? That if God allows a man to curse your name, God allows a man to assault your family. God allows a man to do anything that's counted as sin against you. You can look to him and say, God, you must have a purpose that is higher and greater and more transcendent than this. This must be for your glory. Therefore, I forgive. 
But because God's glory is the highest, because God's glory is the greatest, there can be no sin against God that you can look to the backside and say, well, maybe there's something higher than that. You see, you assaulted the king's glory, but there's a greater glory in heaven. There is no greater glory than the glory of God. Therefore, those who have trespassed, those who have sinned, those who have rebuked, those who have belittled the glory of God, they must stand before him in judgment. He cannot just turn the other cheek. He cannot just write off sin. He must receive payment. He must be vindicated. God cannot simply turn a blind eye to sin. Now, I want you to know I use that word, cannot, with great sobriety. To say that God cannot do something, most of you, when you were a kid, you asked that stupid question, could God make a rock that's too big for him to pick up? Nonsense. But there are things. Scripture does tell us of things that God cannot do. Titus 1-2 says that God cannot lie. James 1-13 says that God cannot be tempted with evil, nor can he tempt anyone. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God cannot allow sin to stand in his blessed presence. And God cannot simply overlook sin. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who judges the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. As the just and righteous, righteous judge of the universe, as the one who cannot lie, as the one who is the very author of truth, he cannot justify He cannot declare innocent those who have done what is wicked. And from the very beginning, God has said that the soul who sins will die. God God cannot present a threat like this, a promise like this, and simply turn his back on it, simply ignore sin. Therefore, God cannot be the infinitely holy God of the universe and allow sin to go unpunished. But even more than this, you must see that God cannot allow the glory of his name to be despised. Turn to Romans 3. We're going to finish there. You know when I say we're going to finish, it doesn't mean two minutes. But that is where we will finish. I think that we see it most clearly here. And we see it in direct relationship to the redemption. Romans 3, verse 23. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's everything that we've just been talking about, right? That sin is the belittling of the glory of God, but that in Christ God is redeeming sinners. He's justifying us, that he is declaring us us to be righteous because of the person and the work of Christ Jesus. He says here that Christ Jesus in verse 25 is he whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see that word propitiation there? Talk about a rich and beautiful and necessary word. We don't have time to fully unpack it in God's good timing when he brings us to study together the book of Romans. We'll come there and we will do an entire I don't know how long Trying to unpack what is meant by this word. But in short, propitiation means to satisfy or to appease God's righteous wrath. Now again, many professing believers, they don't like the idea of having to appease God. Seeing God as a wrathful God whose wrath must be quenched, must be satisfied. That God would require payment for our sins. That seems ungodly. It seems harsh. It doesn't seem like the God who is love. But church, again, I tell you, to miss this is to completely miss the purpose of the cross. 
It's to miss the heart of the crucifixion. It's to miss the reason for Christ's coming. It's to miss the only way by which man may be made right with God. Understand that what we witnessed in the cross, what we see in the crucifixion, the purpose for Christ Jesus' coming is that he would completely exhaust the the Father's righteous wrath. That he would placate God. That he would satisfy God's vengeance, his righteous and just anger towards us. Now people say, that's not fair. For God to demand such a payment, for God to require such a thing to take the wrath that is due us and demand that his son drink it down. But to do this is to completely miss who Christ Jesus is, the son of God. See, some people, they'll get it twisted. They'll say, look, if we're enslaved to sin, we're enslaved to death, if we're enslaved to Satan, then surely the payment must go to Satan. That's the way the ransom movies work, right? You give the payment to the bad guy. But this is the myth that Christ Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent. He came to give him nothing. That the payment was due to the Father because it was the Father's glory that had been spurned. It was the Father's glory that had been diminished and belittled. But that the Father himself sent his Son to make the payment. This is God taking the wrath of God upon himself to save you from that very same wrath. This is the only way. This is the only way that any of this makes sense. This is the only way that any of this comes together. This is the only way that you can have justification, to be counted as righteous, to be forgiven, and stand before God. But he goes on. He says, this was, this putting forward of Christ, this offering of Christ as our ransom to satisfy the Father's wrath, that this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over sins. So there's something that God has done. You remember that all throughout this book of Romans, Paul seems to be speaking to an opponent of some sort. That he's anticipating, what are the people's objections? I try to do that. I try to put myself in your shoes. And that can be tough because I might spend 40 or 50 hours working on a sermon and get so lost in what I find to be the answer, I forget what the questions are. I forget what the objections are. It's It's a difficult thing, I'll be honest with you. Paul is a master at it. Because Paul has had enough of these conversations, I'm sure, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, duh, he's able to foresee what is the objection? What would my opponent say to this? And so one of the questions, one of the concerns that people might have is, is God unrighteous? Specifically, is God unrighteous because he's been passing over sins? That God has been allowing sins to go unpunished for thousands of years. I want you to think about King David. He slept with Bathsheba, had her husband murdered, all manner of unrighteousness had sinned against God. And yet when he cries out for mercy, what does the prophet tell him? The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. How can he do this and not be unrighteous? Again, he has sinned against God. He has belittled the glory of God. So how can God put this away and not be counted as unrighteous? Because to pass over sins like this, to ignore sins, to forgive sins without requiring that the payment is given. This is to agree with the sinner. This is for God to condone, to agree, to stamp his name upon those who say that God's glory can be rejected and despised and traded for something less. Do you understand? God can't do that. God can't reject his own glory. God can't condone when others have done the same. And so God's name, it must be vindicated. And again, I tell you, deep down, we all know this. We want to receive something different in a place like this. You want to hear that forgiveness is just given. No need for talk about wrath. No need for talk about judgment. Because number one, if we look to the cross and we see the ultimate picture of God's wrath poured out upon his son there, we recognize how disgusting our sin really is. 
We realize how little we deserve, and it becomes a stumbling block. Beyond this, we feel the need to make excuses for God. You people know this more than anybody else. We walk through the doctrines of grace, God's sovereignty even in our salvation. How many people have told you, that's not the God I know? Or worse than this, I would never worship a God like that. Dear friends, you take great care with those words coming out of your lips. Scripture tells us who God is, and we worship the God of Scripture. But men feel this constant need to make an excuse for God, to cover up for God's faults, to create a God after their own image. And it feels good in a place like this. But in the back of your mind, you know it doesn't make sense. You know that a rebellion like this, a theft like this, a robbery like this, it requires recompense. It requires atonement. It requires payment. So we're right back to, how does my believing in Christ Jesus do anything to make payment for my sin? If all Jesus died for was to just show us how much God loves us, if all Jesus did in dying was to show us that he is like us, that he too can die, even if all Jesus did in dying was showed us this is how much God hates sin, he's willing to put his son to death for it. If there was no trade, if there was no payment, if there was no ransom given, the sins were never dealt with, and you know it. And so we find then, what do men do? They come to Christ Jesus in repentant faith, believing they have been redeemed, they have been ransomed, they have been set free. But because they don't understand the payment, because pastors that are more worried about filling up church houses than they are speaking the truth of God, because they've never talked to them about the payment that was due to God for their sin, they then go out and try to make that payment themselves. They don't see that it is finished means that it is finished. They don't understand where forgiveness comes from. And so they find themselves completely miserable, constantly seeking to make up for their sins, constantly seeking to do that which must be done to make them right with God. So Paul's addressing this. That's, that's what he's addressing here. Is God unrighteous? He's just passed over all these sins. For 2,000 years, or for thousands of years, he's been passing over sins, not requiring payment for sins. Now, you might be tempted to say, wait a minute, but didn't David go to the temple and offer animals? Wasn't that what the sacrifice was? There was blood that was shed there. There were sin offerings that were offered there. Didn't that, isn't that what covered the sins? Isn't that where forgiveness came for the Old Testament saints? Well, not completely. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. In God's divine forbearance, he accepted these animals as an offering, as given in faith. As these men look beyond the animals and they look forward in faith to the God who is merciful, to the God who has said, I will not count your sins against you. To the God who has said, I'll receive a substitute in your place. That he received these animals as a picture of this. But they could never atone for the sins of man. If one sin demands infinite payment in hell from sinners, if it takes an eternity in hell, and yet at the end of that, at the end of 10,000 years, men have not even made a debt, a dent in the debt that they owe God. How much less can an animal's blood atone for sin? Even a perfect animal, even a valuable animal, how much less can they make the payment that is due to God? That's why we go back to Psalm 51, and we see David saying, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So the reality is that for thousands of years, these payments had gone with these sins had gone without payment. These sins had not yet been punished. 
And now, therefore, in order to show God's righteousness, to reveal his righteousness, to prove I am the righteous judge, that there is not one sin in all the universe that goes unpaid, either by the sinner in hell or by my son upon the cross. Verse 26 says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That the God who is just, the God who is righteous, the God who is true, the God who cannot belittle or condone those who belittle the glory of his own name, he will do what is right. He will require payment. But that this God who is also gracious and merciful and loving, and this one who desires to save you, to allow you to stand before him justified, righteous, blessed sons under the fount of his endless blessing. In order to accomplish this, he takes that wrath, he places upon his son, and he drinks it all down. He takes the record of our trespasses and he nails them to the cross. We have this picture as though there's this file cabinet and in that file cabinet are all the sins of Andrew and God goes over there and he looks and they're just not there and he doesn't know how. That's not a good picture. The reality is that he's taken the sins of Andrew and he has placed them upon his son Jesus Christ and he has poured out his fury upon him so that he can now turn and look at a brother like him or a sister like you and say, I love you. It was for love that I sent my son it was as I saw you in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. It was as I saw him as slain before the foundation of the world that I've set my love upon you, that I've sent my son, that I've purchased your redemption. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we know that we are blessed. The more full our picture of who you are really is, the more clearly we see you. So, Father, we thank you that you are a God who has chosen to reveal all of you, at least all of you that man can see, not just your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness, but your justice and your wrath and your holiness too. And, Father, we know that it's only when we see these two things coming together fully at the cross of Jesus Christ that we will truly celebrate and rejoice in our salvation. So, Father, my ultimate hope, my prayer this morning is that if there are any here who do not yet who have not yet turned from their sin and trusted in this one who laid down his life, that you would cause them to do that now. For those of us that have, Father, I pray that you would cause us to grow in our assurance and to rejoice as your children. God, we love you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.